Welcome to episode four of Dual Citizens. My name is David Old. Today we're going to look at the conversation around the Religious Discrimination Bill currently before the Federal Parliament. We'll have a think about whether our young people are getting softer and we'll actually see how those two topics are really explained by a more fundamental issue underlying them. Well, this week marks the first parliamentary sitting week of the new year. Leading up to an election in the months to come, the Morrison government is facing extreme pressure on multiple fronts. We've had recent scandals over what people have been saying in SMSs for the treatment of women in the parliamentary workplace. They've had their own pre-selection dramas in every way, it seems. They're up against it. And they've added to a bit of uh, the difficulty by this week uh, putting up the religious discrimination bill for the parliament. It, of course, um, has come to the nation's attention through recent incidents such as the City Point Christian College affair in Brisbane, which we covered in last week's episode. Now, unfortunately, it takes us about a day to edit, process, and upload Dual Citizen, so I can't give you an up-to-the-minute report on what's going on in Parliament. But nevertheless, let's talk about the issues that underlie this religious discrimination bill, and more particularly, how has the conversation been going on? Well, what, what should we think about the bill? Well, look, as Christians, we, we simply expect, don't we, the ire and mockery of the world. Any number of scriptural examples uh, will we'll show that to us. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, John 15.19, Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Uh, and even this week here at St. John's Parramatta, I'm preaching on Matthew 10. Jesus says, Matthew 10 verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me. So we're warned by the scriptures to expect opposition and hostility simply because we're Christians. And, and I wonder if actually a lot of the time, much of our trouble becomes and begins because we keep being surprised by this. We keep being shocked that there are hostile people out there. The scriptures tell us there should be no surprise. Yet, as a body of believers, as dual citizens living in a culture that has greatly benefited from a Christian heritage, we are surely, I think, right to, to promulgate that common grace of, of rights and legal protections, freedoms of belief, association and speech, which are a positive thing for everybody, not just ourselves and fellow Christians. Those, those rights flow naturally from an understanding that we are all created by God in his image, and that there is therefore an inherent dignity and worth to humans. To harm someone is to harm something that is precious that God has made. Uh, just one example of this kind of reasoning can be seen in the United States Declaration of Independence. Think how that opens. Uh, consider these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, people, are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Did you see the logic they're arguing? It's our creation by God that inevitably means certain things about us as humanity. That surely is one of the foundations when it comes to protecting the rights of people. 
Now, one of the developments that we've seen out of this controversy around the religious discrimination bill, and some of it's been manufactured, I think we've got to acknowledge. One, one of the things we've seen is the increasing level of partisan activism within sections of the media and journalism. It can be seen throughout both the City Point saga and the latest example of common outrage that's uh, dragged the religious discrimination bill into the spotlight. And this one certainly has been manufactured. Penrith Christian School, where it looks like journalists went fishing to try and find something. Uh, I will talk a little bit more about that particular situation later. But as we do that, take a look at this. This is a short clip from SBS News. It's a little video they put up on Twitter, and it featured uh, testimony from an LGBTQ former student at City Point Christian College. Just watch this for a couple of seconds. So telling a 14-year-old that they're going to go to hell for the rest of their life because of who they are, that, that is the type of language that, that just can't be in our schools anymore. So think about what we just watched. It's a standalone clip with no context provided for why or how the school made the decision that it made. No counter-argument is provided. The video is edited for maximum effect and then they put the music behind it, deliberately used to evoke an emotional, sympathetic response from the viewer. The person giving the testimony is cast as a, a victim in all of this. There's no advocate for, for the city point or even simply the Christian perspective anywhere to be seen. In fact, I looked at SBS's Twitter and Facebook stream for the last few days and there were numerous tweets and videos all pushing this same line that the proposed bill will be harmful. I did not see a single tweet, not one, educating their audience on the orthodox Christian position on these things and response to the claims. That is not journalism. That's activism. The SBS Code of Conduct states, quote, our news and current affairs content is accurate, balanced and impartial and in the public interest. Well, let me say in this matter, I don't think it is. I think it quite clearly is not. There is a whole segment of their audience online, Twitter and Facebook, that they're feeding a one-sided story to. Now, the Religious Discrimination Bill, as it's currently drafted and it's before Parliament, uh, aims to ensure that bodies like religious schools can hire staff who adhere to their faith and that the ethos of the school community, including the day-to-day -day running of the school, is in line with their beliefs. Now look, again, the Bible is quite clear regarding what practices are and aren't acceptable within a Christian community, and we've dealt with the specific issue of human sexuality last week. Go and check out that video if you want to hear more about those specifics. Bottom line, there's simply no doubt that Orthodox Christianity has maintained a clear sexual ethic for 2,000 years, and so it's hardly extraordinary that we believe those same things now. What has changed is the way that these things are viewed by the society around us and the manner in which a small segment simply cannot tolerate any alternate view on the matter. Of course, it's not just City Point in Brisbane. In, in what is clearly a move deliberately planned for the run-up to this legislation going before Parliament, another school has been attacked on the same issue. Penrith Christian School has been harangued, I think that's the right word to use, in The Guardian and on social media for a small section of its school statement of faith. The article in The Guardian alleges that the statement of faith places same-sex relationships and transgender identity in the same category as abusive relationships. Here's the key sentence from that statement of faith by Penrith Christian School. Quote, adultery, same-sex attraction, transgender identity, 
premarital sex, sexual acts between members of the same sex, and abusive relationships are all examples of relationships and behaviors which are not acceptable to God. Now, that was verging on disingenuous reporting, wasn't it, by The Guardian? The school is not saying that all these behaviors are exactly equivalent, just that they're all not acceptable to God. And they're not, as we've already seen. But let's go further. To issue such a list is something that Jesus himself does. In fact, he makes even broader comparisons. So, for example, in Mark 7, verses 20 to 23, Jesus lists the evils that he says, quote, come from inside and defile a person. He lists sins for which every Christian must be on guard and self-aware. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, it's interesting, isn't it, that he starts there. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. See, what is Jesus saying and what isn't he saying? Well, he's simply stating with a list of vices that they're all vices. <laughs> he's not saying they're all exactly equivalent to one another, just simply that they're all wrong. And yet this is sadly typical again of what is passing for journalism by some on this topic, subtle misrepresentation and then plain activism. You know, almost 10 years ago, I sat with a producer for a TV show that I went on to appear in, and we talked about the Christian view of human sexuality. And I explained the sort of things we've discussed on this podcast. And at the end, he said to me, I've never heard that view expressed before. And I did respond to him, well, that's incredibly surprising because it's the orthodox Christian view. And we've always been more than happy to explain it. It's just that your fellow journalists show little evidence that they even want to know, let alone understand. And our experience filming the show was exactly the same. My conversation partners insisted they didn't want to listen since they knew exactly what I was going to say, but they couldn't actually begin to explain what my position really was. And that's particularly indicative, isn't it, of where we still are today. The Christian position on sexual ethics is consistently misunderstood and misrepresented. And that's in large part because it's read through the lens of our modern society's increasing obsession with feeling good. If it makes you feel good, well, then that's okay. But if it makes me feel bad, well, then it must be stopped. So we get all this language of harm. This view is harmful for people. And interestingly, this seems to be particularly the case when it comes to questions of sexual attraction and self-identification, where people's resilience does appear to be remarkably lacking at times. All of which brings us to our second topic today, which is this. Are our kids in particular too soft? Now, many might suggest that the younger generation of today's society are growing increasingly incompetent and soft compared to their older ancestors. Gen Z, millennials, and the new iGen, named for their abundance reliance on new technology, they have endured the brunt of insults hurled by their Gen X, that's me, and boomer counterparts, might even be you, as they grew up in notably different circumstances. I got my first mobile phone when I was 21. Now, there are some statistics that show us that there clearly is something going on. According to a report prepared by the Grattan Institute for the Victorian Government, older Australians have substantially greater wealth, income and expenditure than older Australians uh, three decades ago. Younger Australians have not made the same progress. 
Uh, they suggest that the wealth gains of previous generations are not going to be repeated. Uh, we're simply unlikely, says this report, to see the same house price rises and superannuation growth of the last 20 years. Added to that, wage growth has been stagnant in Australia for more than five years. At the same time, our youngest generations are simply not ready for the long-term view that all of this will require. In a recent article on this topic in The Australian, one commentator made this quip, resilience? Most Australians under 40 would never have heard of the word and will never have been taught it in school, so good luck with that one. A family member told my wife yesterday their millennial son, still at home at 26 of course, was complaining that the toilet paper she had at home was not three-ply. <laughs> well, how about something from further afield? Writing in South Africa's Biz News last year, Alec Hogg has an article entitled Snowflake Generation? Why Millennials Are Too Soft and Who's to Blame? He points to the rise of this term snowflake, originating from Chuck Palahniuk's cult classic book and film Fight Club, where one of the characters says, you're not special, you're not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. And hence the terms snowflake and the snowflake generation were born. It became a word of the year for Collins Dictionary in 2016, officially added to the Oxford English Dictionary a few years after that. It's all set out in Hogg's piece, where he points to the Financial Times defining snowflake, and this is a great uh, little description. Snowflake is, quote, a derogatory term for someone deemed too emotionally vulnerable to cope with views that challenge their own, particularly in universities and other forums once known for robust debate. So what's going on here? Well, I think there's layers to this whole thing, and it's certainly a complex interplay of factors. According to educator Michaela Launertz, the blame for many personal inadequacies among our young people lies with the internet. There's pressure on them to maintain positive body image, the art of conversations changed, and so on. It's also commonly acknowledged that we live in a far more instant world. So these days, pretty much all things can be obtained quickly through an app. So not only do our young people, who are by far and away the biggest users of such technology, but not only do they come to expect more immediate and comprehensive gratification, they then often also find it more difficult to communicate with someone using other media. So for example, over the phone or even just face-to-face -face in real life. As a result, uh, Launitz argues, soft skills such as problem solving, teamwork, and critical thinking are often lacking in today's work environment. Put simply, it does appear as though young people want everything now, but without a proper sense of the process and the time it takes to get those things. Now, why is, why, why is this happening? Well, lots of different things have been suggested. Back to Alec Hogg in Biz News for some of these. Uh, is it what's known, he asks, as uh, something as helicopter parenting? Parents who constantly hover over their children, parents who solve all their children's problems, uh, but don't raise them to have problem-solving skills for themselves. But actually, I, I don't think that's a cause. I think that's just another symptom. Why do parents behave in this way? Well, at least in part, I think, because they themselves can't cope with watching their children struggle. So we as parents are also increasingly snowflakes, and so we'll minimize our own discomfort because we can't cope with watching the discomfort of our children. 
Part of the problem could also be that current circumstances are not helping this generation, so housing prices are well above wage levels and so on, and, and it appears increasingly futile, therefore, to try and achieve what previous generations managed to do. That's the, that's the double whammy. You expect to have everything easily, and yet the big things are even more difficult to obtain. Not to mention that previous generations were able to look forward to secure jobs, pensions, houses of their own, and so on. And now we have people in their 20s and 30s moving back into their parents' bosom. Add to that all the pressure to present our perfect selves on social media, causing record cases of anxiety, and so on, and so on. But there's something else going on underneath all of this. And here's where it ties into our first topic today. Beneath all these symptoms that we're discussing is the radical movement in philosophical foundation that our culture has gone through over the past 50 years or so. And I think it's possible to describe this seismic shift as a transition from external sources of authority to the self as the great arbiter of what is true and right. Let me, let me explain what I mean. As a society, we used to take our understanding of what is true from things outside ourselves. We've looked to scientists to help us understand the world, to other thinkers to help us frame our understanding in logical and consistent ways. And of course, as Christians, we understand, don't we, that ultimate truth comes to us in the form of revelation. God's self-revelation of himself in the scriptures and then ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of God the Father. So the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, by which he means the Father, but the one and only Son, does Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Or the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He's talking about Jesus. So God reveals himself to us and he is revealed most fully and finally in Jesus. And the point I'm making here is that that is an external source of truth. We don't work this all out for ourselves. Nobody philosophizes to a true understanding of God. I mean, some have tried, of course, but none of them at the end of their long, self-deduced arguments concludes, and therefore God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Jesus puts it, when Peter acknowledges who he really is, Matthew 16, 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But we live in a very different philosophical world now. We live in the world of deconstruction, where every truth claim is challenged simply because it is a truth claim. And as a result of all those claims of truth are now up for grabs. And, and this is an important step in the chain, all the structures that those truths establish for us are also challenged. Hang on to that thought, because we'll return to it. Now, if we can no longer rely on external sources of truth, then there's only one option available to us. If truth is not to be found outside us, then it must be found inside. But here's the thing. External truth, if it really is true, is objective. It's verifiable. It's logical. It will be consistent, not least because God has made an ordered and understandable world. But when I turn in on myself, I find few of those things. Yes, I have a brain that can think, but I also have a heart and emotions and passions and desires. And on top of that, we as Christians know the sad truth that although we are wonderfully created in God's image, 
That image in us is now broken, marred and corrupted by our sin. So, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, writes the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17.9. Who can understand it? The reality is that we are self-interested, self-indulgent, frankly, when it comes down to it, just selfish people. There's a reason why so much of the ethical instruction in the Bible is directed towards us loving other people, because we are naturally, instead, lovers of ourselves. And what happens when a lover of self is asked to determine what is true and right? Well, the answer is surely obvious. It's whatever I want, whatever gratifies my desire. This is, of course, why we live in a culture that is now so averse to hardship and pain, or even just waiting for things, because that is hard and uncomfortable for me. And now I hope we can begin to see the clash of understanding that has led to the current confusion over sexual ethics. Revealed truth tells us clearly that almost every creature on the planet, and especially humans themselves, have a binary gender of male and female, and that heterosexual reproduction is therefore the overwhelming norm. Our genetics tell us that. Our physical nature tells us that. Observed behaviour tells us that. When the scientists of previous years did the hard work, for example, of working out how genetics functioned or the structure of DNA, they naturally accepted and relied upon those truths. And we're also not surprised that God's revelation in Scripture tells us exactly the same thing. Of course it does. The Creator speaks truth about His creation. That's external truth. It's measurable. It's verifiable. And it provides a framework to understand the world and therefore to make moral decisions. But remove that external framework and we're left with the self. So now it doesn't matter that pretty much everyone in the world has either a pair of XY chromosomes or XX. That's almost irrelevant to how I feel, or, or it doesn't matter that the vast majority of sexual behaviour and reproduction across all of creation is heterosexual. If I experience homosexual attraction, then that is an absolute good because I experience it, and I am my own arbiter of what is natural or good or true. Further, to challenge my understanding now is to personally attack me. After else, what, what else could be going on there? In a world where there is no external frame of reference for us, both to measure ourselves by, all I've got is me. And my own frame of reference must be defended because it's my only way of understanding and dealing with the world. It tells me who I am and what I should do. In every way, it is me. It is, whether we will admit it or not, entirely self-centered. So no wonder we live in a world where increasingly people think it's all about me. We never stood a chance to think otherwise. So now go back to the City Point situation. Think about that video having a go at Penrith Christian School. Can, can you see the clash? The Christian says, here is our external frame of reference by which we are all measured and by which we can all understand ourselves, what is good and what is broken. Here is God's wonderful revelation of himself that explains his creation. But the world says, I decide for myself what is true, and my understanding of the world is tied to who I perceive myself to be. And if you criticise one, then you're criticising the other. If you criticise my worldview, you're attacking me. And of course, that would mean pain and suffering for me, which again is the worst thing for me. Can you see the emotional black hole this becomes? Everything sucked into it. So here is the great challenge for Christians in our current age. 
The gospel of Jesus relies on revelation, on the external truth that there is a God, that he has made the world in a certain way, that much of who we are and what we do is sinful and offensive to him. That is the problem that we present to the world and insist they must face. It's, it's unhelpful to only say, Jesus loves you. See, that's actually not news at all to the person who is the arbiter of their own truth in the center of their own world. That statement on its own only reinforces their position. Of course, Jesus loves me. I don't fit into an external framework. My heart is the framework by which I consider everything else. I am, to all intents and purposes, the center of the universe. I am my own reference point, not a creature subject to God's judgment. Of course, he loves me. I am me. But the gospel tells a different story. In the language of, of a great evangelism course, Christianity Explored, the gospel tells us we are more wicked than we ever realized, and yet more loved than we ever dreamed. But the latter really only makes sense if you understand the former. The dual citizen knows this, but we struggle to know how to communicate it. What I want to encourage us with today is that we need to not give up communicating these truths. The issue for City Point, for, for Penrith Christian School, and indeed for all of us as we struggle to communicate well on this most difficult of topics, is bigger than simply asserting moral standards and protecting the right of our institutions to be organized in certain ways. And those are important things. No, the issue is ultimately the communication of the gospel itself in a very, very different world that thinks in a very, very different way. We need to keep speaking the truth of a God who created all things and created everything in a certain way for our own good. We need to do that all the more in a society that has very different ways of understanding because they have different ways of understanding. The further our Western culture shifts from its Christian moorings, the more important this becomes. Otherwise, how might they understand the truth of the gospel? I'll leave the last bit of the argument to the Apostle Paul, reading here from Philippians 3, verse 18. For, he writes, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. And as dual citizens, don't we long for our fellow citizens of earth to be rescued from judgment and, and to know the joy of being a saved citizen of heaven? It won't happen if we're not prepared to speak of these heavenly revealed things. Well, that's dual citizens for another week. There, there are other things bubbling away in the background that, that might be worth you looking at. The, the government has announced uh, $5,000 grants for women fleeing domestic violence to help them get back on their feet and into the workforce. I'm, I'm particularly very excited by that one. It's a field I've been personally involved in uh, in the past. Uh, the government's also issued a report on the status and future of the Great Barrier Reef. We'll link to that one in the show notes. There's, there's gonna, that's going to renew debate over climate change and our responsibility for the creation. Uh, the tension over Ukraine doesn't seem to be abating um, at all. Keep your eye on that one. We will as well. If that all blows up, hopefully it doesn't actually blow up, but um, if that all goes wrong, then we'll, we'll certainly want to address uh, what we might think about that one. 
All the links to our discussion today are in the show notes. Uh, and please do also be in contact on the socials or on our website contact page. We love to hear from you. What do you think of Dual Citizens? What would you like to see us discuss in future episodes? And of course, anything else you want to tell us. But that's it for now. I'm David Old, and that was Dual Citizens. <laughs>